In this episode of the St. Philip Institute podcast, we're going to discuss the long trajectory of St. Paul VI encyclical, Humanae Vitae. He wrote this encyclical in 1968, and it reaffirmed the Catholic Church's prohibition or rejection of contraception. What I'll show you in this episode, though, is the long story of how we got from the biblical teaching all the way to 1968. And I especially focus on the unity among all Christians. Martin Luther and John Calvin agreed that contraception was an evil, and I want you to see how this all how all of these pieces fit together. One warning for this episode especially, parents, you need to listen to this before you let children listen to it. It's not extremely graphic, but I'm talking about contraception for an hour, so there are some times where we've got to go into a little bit more detail than we would normally do. Uh, I do hope that it is helpful for you in seeing this big picture and seeing how the church's teaching has both developed but also been consistent from the beginning. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Eternal Father, you called St. Philip the Evangelist to open his mouth and begin with Scripture, tell the good news of Jesus Christ. By virtue of our baptism, we too are called to work for the salvation of souls. Instill in our hearts the zeal of St. Philip, that we may convert hearts and minds to your Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior, who lives and reigns forever and ever. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hi. Welcome to a special edition episode of the St. Philip Institute podcast. My name is Luke Arredondo, and I am the Director of Faith Formation here at the St. Philip Institute. And I'm really excited to be with you for this special episode. Uh, I'm going to be talking in the ensuing minutes here about the Catholic teaching on contraception, and specifically the intriguing, almost unbelievable story of the document Humanae Vitae. So Humanae Vitae is a papal encyclical. It was written by Pope Paul VI in 1968, and it has been called by George Weigel the most um, resisted, most rejected encyclical in the history of the Church uh, that ignited a firestorm of controversy after it was released. And it has personally been an issue that has always been really fascinating for me. Um, knowing as a high school student what the Church taught about contraception, and knowing that most Catholics didn't follow it always just stuck with me as some sort of irreconcilable problem that I just never could get past. I, everybody else just seemed to accept it, right? Yeah, the Church says this, but nobody does it. And that really bothered me. And there's a, a moment in a confirmation class where uh, we were being uh, given sort of an, an instruction on sexual morality, and our normal instructors left the room, Somebody from another church, another parish, I'm not sure where this woman was from, uh, she had been brought in that day to give us a discussion about sexuality, and our normal confirmation instructors left, and she stayed with us, and she told us, this is what the church says about contraception, and then I'll never forget this moment, she leans forward and almost whispers, but you don't have to follow it, especially if you're young and you don't want to make a mistake, and that always just stuck with me as like, this is... This is a fundamental problem that people need to take more seriously. So in my own journey, I've, I've really been interested in how we got to 1968, Paul VI issuing this teaching that you as a married, even if you're not married, like 
even married couples, right, cannot use contraception um, because it is a violation of the natural law. I wanted to figure out why we got that document. And so I've always kind of had my eye on this issue. And what I want to share with you today is this grand story. Uh, I don't know how many of you are familiar with uh, Father Michael Gately. He has a book called The Second Greatest Story Ever Told, which I, as soon as I saw the title of that book, I thought, dang it, I can never write a story about Humani Vitae and call it The Second Greatest Story Ever Told because Father Michael Gately already stole that. So maybe this would be the third greatest story ever told. And that's how the church, the Catholic Church, has maintained its position on whether or not contraception is licit or illicit, that is, whether it's allowed or not allowed. Um, and the ways in which there was so much pressure to change. So it's a very long story, and I do feel like it's something every Catholic needs to know, and probably other Christians need to know this too, because in a large part, it's the Christian story. So did you know, for instance, uh, until 1930, all of the denominations, all the denominations of Christianity taught the same thing about contraception, namely that it was, it was an evil. It was not a good thing. You didn't have any permission. And it's only been since 1930, so it was still less than 100 years, that any Christians have publicly taught that contraception was acceptable. So, I mean, think of it this way. We've got, from the time of Christ, 1,900 years forward of Christian unity on this issue, and then things begin to divide. So I want to look at the history a little bit, talk about the biblical origins of this teaching on contraception, what some of the Reformers— had to say about the issue, and then get into all of the intrigue uh, that happened in the 20th century. So it's, it is a, a long story. Hang on to your hats, because it's, it's really quite a lot of things to try and tie together. So because it's so old of an issue, such a big story, we got to go to the book of Genesis, right? So anytime you're starting in Genesis, you know, you're, you're telling an old story. Um, from the book of Genesis, chapter 38, we have the story of Onan, Okay. So in, in Genesis 38, we hear about Judah, who um, has a son named Er, and he finds a wife for Er, and her name is Tamar. It says in chapter 38, verses 6 through 10, but Er, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord slew him. Then Judah said to Onan, Onan was another son of Judah, so heir is the firstborn, then Onan. So he said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So when he went into his brother's wife, he spilled the semen on the ground, lest he should give offspring to his brother. And what he did was displeasing in the sight of the Lord, and he slew him also. Now, what is this story about? Well, Onan is being given a task to essentially raise children with his brother's dead wife. And this is called a levirate marriage. Uh, it's, a, it's an Old Testament practice. If a man dies without any children, a close relative, so it could be a brother or a cousin or something, is expected to marry his wife and have children sort of in his name. So that's what, what it means that when it says that he knew that the children would not be uh, his. Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. Uh, so this is his hesitation. He doesn't want to have children with his brother's wife, who were not going to be recognized as his own. 
So it says he spilled the seed on the ground, okay? Uh, there's a technical vocabulary that we'll develop for this term called coitus interruptus, um, also called the sin of onan or onanism. If you're reading any uh, moral theology manuals from the early 20th century, they may have used the term onanism. That's what it refers to. Now, contemporary scholarship on the Scripture will very regularly dismiss this passage as having anything to do with contraception because they'll say, you know, onanism, coitus interruptus, the sin of onan, that was different than modern forms of contraception. So we can't use this passage to evaluate contemporary uh, situations and methods of contraception, right? And I can understand the distinction between the act, of the sin of onan or onanism, I like to use that term, uh, between onanism and, say, you know, um, the pill or um, uh, various forms of hormonal contraceptives that are used today. However, in the history of Christianity, this passage has had a pretty clear interpretation. So one of the things that is really important for Catholics is the witness of the tradition of the Church in interpreting Scripture. If you look in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, it describes how Catholics are supposed to interpret the Bible. We're supposed to pay attention, of course, to Scripture itself, but also to tradition and the magisterium. In the tradition of the Church, this the interpretation of this passage um, has has regularly been in, in understood to really be speaking about the sin of Onan, uh, and, and condemning that action in itself. Uh, and then as it develops, to continue to tie that to other forms of contraception. So for instance, Clement of Alexandria in, in the early 2nd century, 191, I mean late 2nd century, 191, said to, uh, because of its divine institution for the pro- propagation of man, the seed is not to be vainly ejaculated, nor is it to be damaged, nor is it to be wasted. Uh, he also said to have coitus other than to procreate children is to do injury to nature. So they're trying to preserve the, the, the link between conception, between sex and the procreation of children. And to separate those two was, was understood to be um, a sin. Now, Augustine uh, also takes a similar reading. So this is St. Augustine. This is in the 400s. He says, why has Paul said... If man cannot control himself, let him marry, surely to prevent incontinence from constraining him to adultery. If then he practices continence, neither let him marry nor beget children. So I'll pause here and kind of fill you in on what Augustine's trying to say. St. Paul recommends marriage in a limited sort of way in the New Testament. He really, Paul really did see that it would be, it would be better to attain Christian perfection if you weren't married, because if you are married, you have sort of a divided focus. You need to focus on things of heaven and God and your spiritual life. But if you're married, then you have, of course, a wife and probably children. You're going to have those very real things that you need to focus on as well. So what Augustine is saying here is that if you can maintain continence, meaning stay pure sexually, then you don't need to get married. But if it's impossible then you should marry and do so righteously, right? Have a sacramental marriage, be faithful to it, rather than let your sexual temptations kind of overcome you um, and you wind up do, you know, sinning in, in, in all sorts of ways uh, that, that you shouldn't. So to continue on w- with Augustine's commentary, he says, 
If if he, if a man doesn't control himself, let him enter into lawful wedlock so that he may not beget children in disgrace or avoid having offspring by a more degraded form of intercourse. So something really important here in this longer trajectory of the of the teaching on contraception is that in the early church there is more kind of concern about every single act of of sexual intimacy being directly related to the bearing of children. Augustine, in fact, would teach in De Bono Conjugale on the good of marriage that that sexual union had to be for the explicit purpose of uh, conception of children or else you are sinning, right? So in other words, if you just desired sexual union and it was with your spouse who you were married to sacramentally, Augustine would say that's that's venially sinful because we ought only to use our sexual faculties to procreate. So there is development within the Christian tradition, within the Catholic tradition on this, that sexual union can have more than just the purpose of procreating. But what's consistent throughout is that you can never separate the procreative dimension of sex uh, from the unitive, right? So to uh, spill the seed as Onan did, right, to try and enjoy the union of sex, but without and, and explicitly rejecting the uh, procreative element uh, of the sexual act is wrong. So here's here's a line from um, Augustine in this in this commentary where he talks about the sin of Onan. He says there are some lawfully wedded couples who resort to degraded forms of intercourse. Because he says, intercourse, even with one's lawfully wedded spouse, can take place in an unlawful and shameful manner whenever the conception of offspring is avoided. Onan, the son of Judah, did this very thing, and the Lord slew him. The Lord slain him, right? Therefore, the procreation of children is itself the primary purpose of marriage. Now, that's Augustine, right? It's a good Catholic source. Uh, John Chrysostom says something very similar. I want to draw your attention, though, to St. Thomas Aquinas. So Now, Aquinas is quite a bit later than Augustine, right? Uh, Aquinas uh, comes to us in the 1200s, about 800 years after Augustine. And he gives a development in the Summa Contra Gentiles, uh, one of his two summas, not the one most people uh, actually read, that there can be uh, cases where conception doesn't occur, uh, and if it's not the intention of the of the man or the woman, then that's not a sin, right? But we should still maintain the ordering of the seed of the man toward procreation, as that is its primary purpose. Um, so he makes a little bit of a distinction where Augustine is going to say any time that procreation is not directly willed, it's a sin. Aquinas says there may be cases where it's not on purpose, that that you're not trying to avoid pregnancy, it just doesn't happen, Um, or it could be a nocturnal emission or something like that. Um, That is not necessarily sinful. Or if the woman is sterile, then, you know, procreation is not possible, but that's not sinful for the couple to engage in sexual relations. Now, there's a lot more that could be said here on both Aquinas and Augustine. This is kind of a a broad, sweeping story I'm trying to tell you, but I want to spend a little bit of time here focusing on two of the Protestant Reformers, okay, Martin Luther and John Calvin. Now, the reason that I think this is so fascinating is because, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, from the beginning of Christianity, there was one view about the sin of Onan and about contraception, 
and that is that it's not a good thing, and we shouldn't allow it. We shouldn't permit people um, to to do to do this, and that they need to know that they should avoid it, all the way till 1930, right? So if you're if you're talking to a Protestant, um, particularly a Protestant who's kind of you know, for whatever reason, poking at you about why, what the Catholic Church teaches about contraception, I want you, to, you should draw their attention to the teaching of Martin Luther um, or John Calvin, both of whom had very, very strong um, teachings on the sin of Onan. So this is just a sample from um, Martin Luther's lectures on the book of Genesis, right? He said this, Onan must have been a malicious and incorrigible scoundrel, this is a most disgraceful sin. It is far more atrocious than incest and adultery. We call it unchastity, yes, a sodomitic sin. For Onan goes into her, that is, he lies with her and copulates, and when it comes to the point of insemination, he spills the semen, lest the woman conceive. Surely at such a time the order of nature, established by God in procreation, should be followed. He was inflamed with the basest spite and hatred, Consequently, listen to this, he deserved to be killed by God. He committed an evil deed, therefore God punished him, that worthless fellow, preferred polluting himself with a most disgraceful sin to raising up offspring for his brother. Okay? That is very strong language. Now, Augustine, to be sure, does not look on Onan as some sort of righteous person. And Martin Luther, you should know, was an Augustinian friar, so he was in the order that, that was you know modeled after St. Augustine, very familiar with Augustine's works. Even stronger rejection of Onan's act, saying that he deserved to be killed by God because why? Because he was violating the order of nature that God established that Semen is for procreation, and you can't lie with a woman. You can't go into a woman, no woman, whatever the biblical language might be. You cannot have sexual intercourse with, with, with a woman that you're supposed to conceive with and spill the seed, that like Onan should have known better, and so he deserved to be killed by God, right? That's Martin Luther, okay? So this is, I mean, he's the hero of the Reformation and a very strong position here on contraception. Now, another Protestant reformer, big big time reformer, John Calvin, also uh, you know his own commentary on Genesis, says some very strongly worded things here about Onan. So I'll read you just an excerpt here again from his commentary on Genesis. This is from volume two. He says, "It is a horrible thing to pour out seed beside the intercourse of man and woman. Deliberately avoiding the intercourse so that the seed drops on the ground is doubly horrible." For this means that one quenches the hope of his family and kills the son, which could be expected, before he is born. This wickedness is now as severely as is possible condemned by the Spirit through Moses, that Onan, as it were, through a violent and untimely birth, tore away the seed of his brother out of the womb and as cruel as shamefully has thrown on the earth." Moreover, he thus has, as much as was in his power, tried to destroy a part of the human race. When a woman in some way drives away the seed out of the womb through any aids, then it is rightly seen as an unforgivable crime. So Calvin actually says that this is like a form of murder, that Onan is killing the son 
which would be expected from the marital act, before he could be born. He says, It is as as it onen as it were, through a violent and untimely birth, tore away the seed of his brother out of the womb. So you have Martin Luther, who on the one hand is very strong against Onan. He hated God. He didn't want to follow the rule. He didn't want to obey the natural order laid out by God. John Calvin says this is a form of murder. And in fact, in the Catholic tradition, the uh, Code of Canon Law from the 13th century until 1917 actually called contraception a form of murder. So this is called the uh, If Anyone, see uh, Aliquid, for this, if anyone for the sake of fulfilling sexual desire or with premeditated hatred does something to a man or to a woman or gives something to drink so that he cannot generate or she cannot conceive or offspring not be born, let it be held as homicide. All right? So that's... This is all the way up to, to 1917. The 1917 Code of Canon Law, you know, mod- modifies this statement slightly. Very, very strong rejection of contraception within both Catholic and Protestant settings, okay? If, if there's only one thing you learn from this talk, these, these, this episode, I want it to, to be that until 1930, there was Christian unity on the teaching about contraception. And that in 1930, things changed, and you need to investigate for yourself why and what those changes were, because I think it's one of the the best stories we have as Catholics, us holding on to that teaching. Now, there's, of course, a lot more that that we could say here, but I want to jump forward all the way to the 1800s, okay? One of the things that that, that goes on in this story of contraception, Catholic teaching on contraception— um, is, as I said, and I've, I'll keep saying it, the continuity is, is, is really like a miracle. That Paul VI in 1968 would say, this is the teaching, uh, we still hold to it, is really miraculous. I, I think miraculous. There were very many different kinds of forces trying to change the perception of what contraception was um, not just in terms of theological arguments, okay? So one of the things that's not, not necessarily that science was trying to make contraception seem good, but one of the th- big developments um, over, over the history, especially of the 20th century, but even in the 19th century, is increasing levels of understanding of the menstrual cycle, of how pregnancy functions. Um, of course, you know, this was a, a something that that is slow to develop. Really, being able to see, for instance, in 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 the womb, what it, what development looks like, what the different stages are, this is something that took a long time. And so, one angle to this big story is technological developments. Okay, so in 1845, there's a French researcher, Felix Pouchet, dis- discovered really and, and clarified the relationship between the menstrual cycle. And conception got a better understanding of of the cycle of menstruation and its relationship to conception and the animal kingdom, right? And so these these findings were published, and and what that amounts to is that for the first time, really, people in the late 1800s, mid 1800s, were starting to learn that there was a reliable sort of period of infertility in a normal menstrual cycle. Now. 
They did not have a real exact understanding of precisely what factors to look for to predict the infertile cycle and those sorts of things. Modern, you know, if, if you're a Catholic listening to this, you know, all the, all the NFP stuff that we know now, they did not know this in the 1800s, but they were starting to learn about the infertile period in a normal menstrual cycle. This was evidently, this knowledge, in at least in educated populations, was getting disseminated so that people were starting to become aware that they might be able to, on purpose, use the infertile period uh, of the menstrual cycle as a, as a way of experiencing sexual intimacy within their marriage and without likely having to uh to to risk a a pregnancy or you know or or, or to, to space their births that this might be a way to do that so in 1853 a bishop in france asked the holy office which we would now call the congregation for the doctrine of the faith if it was acceptable for married couples to have sex on these several days each month in which conception by a woman could not take place. That was the official language of the question. Is, is this acceptable? Because what they were receiving, the, the, what generated this question is confessors were getting people coming to confess, saying that they had done that and not knowing if it was a sin, really honestly not knowing. But and you, you got to uh, appreciate the, the candor of these people in the confessional that they're even willing to ask that. I mean, that's how that's how seriously they were taking uh, the church's teaching. Like, I I don't know if this is a sin, but I'm going to confess it just in case. Confessors didn't know what to say, so the bishop of of I I don't know how to say the word A M I E N S Amiens France uh, wrote to the Holy Office to ask, "Is this okay?" Here's the response. It's very short. Okay, those about whom you ask are not to be disturbed, provided they do nothing by which conception is prevented. So essentially, leave them alone. Tell them that they're not sinning as long as they're not actively preventing conception. And this is one of the keys to, to kind of keep your eye on, the prevention of conception, uh, the deliberate prevention of conception during uh, the sexual act, and Paul Paul the sixth will say, before, during, or after, um, that that is is something that the 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 CDF, well, the Holy Office at the time, really wanted to make sure uh, was clear. But that, like the the entire response is a single sentence. If you see it in the journal article, it's it's pretty funny. Now this is this is again 1853, okay, um, and this this is in Europe. So what's happening is because of increasing scientific developments. There are some new angles and questions within a, a Catholic framework of moral theology that needed to be addressed. You know, na- namely, I mean, is this allowed? Can, can couples use uh, the infertile period, uh, what we call the infertile period, or, or is that wrong? And the, the Holy Office says not, not to trouble their consciences. Um, there then begins to develop the teaching that couples might— choose to have intercourse only in that period if they've got some sort of serious reasons. Um, so in 1873, a Belgian uh, theologian published an, an article where he argued precisely that if you have a married couple who has serious reasons to avoid having children, they might want to purposefully find those infertile days and, and have intercourse on only those days to avoid having more children. 
if they have some sort of circumstances that that warrant that. So he said that this this is is something that needs to be considered um, because it could if if you don't start allowing people to do this, you're going to make it more difficult for them to follow the moral law, right? And they're either going to have an abundance of offspring or they will resort to the sin of onanism, right? That that's the that's the the alternative. So we should at least think about this. So discussion is stirring up in the late 1800s theologically about whether or not the infertile period is allowable and what the reasons might be for recourse to intercourse during that time. Now, that's a theological development and that's in Europe. I want to focus on America for for a second. Take us uh, overseas, over the Atlantic. Ray, come with me. You're you're in, in Europe. You're on the Atlantic now. You're you're in America. Okay. In the late 1800s, or sorry, early 1800s, uh, there was a senator from New York whose last name was Comstock, and he, he wrote this this act called the Comstock Act, which uh, effectively made it illegal to ship or import. Articles, drugs, medicines, and other printed material materials considered obscenities. And this applied, this obscenities statute, applied to anything used for the prevention of contraception. So, in the U.S. in the 1800s, there was a concern that the general public needs to not have access to anything which would prevent contraception. Now, part of the inspiration for the Comstock Act, of course, was to enforce a sort of morality, to give people um, easy access to, to, to sex without, con- without conception, seemed to be to encourage um, immoral behavior, the kind of thing you don't want breaking out in, in, in widespread. So that was one part of the concern. And the other part was that a lot of these so-called drugs and medicines were not very well researched. Uh, there was a, a concern for safety, but this this act of 1837 in, in New York wasn't like a one-off where like some weird senator got a law on the books and, and that was the only place. It actually kind of led to other states adopting similar versions of this law, and, and historians and scholars generally just call them the Comstock Laws. There were some differences from one state to another, uh, but, but it did these kinds of things. Some of the laws prohibited any information or devices uh, being disseminated, but they did not say specifically that it was the prevention of conception that was the, was the problem. Some of the statutes allowed for discussion for, for physicians to um, prescribe different devices or drugs, but said you cannot do that specifically to avoid conception. So it's interesting that even in the legal discussion about this, you know, this is this is removed from theology, that there was a recognition of the critical nature of preventing conception by these means. So there were some states that, that had laws outright prohibiting any kind of discussion, sales, advertising, prescription of any of these sorts of things. There were others that said, well, you can talk about it or you can, you can you know, prescribe it, but not to prevent conception. So in other words, there had to be a loophole. You can only allow these things if 
is to treat a medical problem. Okay, 30 states in the United States had bans that prevented physicians from prescribing contraceptives for the purpose of preventing conception. But they could provide or, or, or sell contraceptive devices if it was to treat some sort of medical issue. All right. Now, that's, that's legal. Right? So the, the, the law in, in many places right, follows the culture that like this wasn't rebelled against in the 1800s. It was just sort of an accepted part of reality. Now, in the early 20th century, and this is where things really start getting interesting, there begins to be some cultural resistance to this idea that contraception is evil. But again, one of the reasons for that is that there was improved technology, right, allowing for more reliable forms of contraception, right? Things had come a long way from 1837 when the Comstock laws went into place to 1917 when Margaret Sanger launched the Birth Control Review, which was a magazine devoted to discussing and researching methods of contraception. Now, it should be said that even having a magazine talking about contraception was a pretty risky move, that there were states in which that still was illegal. So Margaret Sanger was really going out on a limb here, but by that time in New York, which is where she was, it was not something that she was going to be punished for. So it was kind of a dead law on the books, but there were other states where even, you know, if, if, you, if you were discovered to, to be disseminating information about contraception, you could still be fined. Um, now, that's 1917 that she starts this birth control review. Uh, Sanger later organized and uh, support for contraception in New York. So she's lobbying to change laws because she thinks that these laws are no longer reflecting the values of society, right? And in 1921, she founded the American Birth Control League. Now, again, 1921, there were still plenty of states that had laws on the books preventing the use of contraceptives for the purpose of preventing conception. And I know that's kind of a mouthful. So in other words, just to, to, to make sure it's really clear, there were well into the 20th century, in fact, till 1955 in some states, rules in force, I mean, in play, not necessarily enforced, but they were still on the books, that you could sell or prescribe various forms of contraceptive uh, devices, but you couldn't give it out to keep people from having children. It had to be to treat some kind of other disease, okay? So, the American Birth Control League that uh, Sanger founded in 1921, the purpose of that was to give information to doctors, to social workers, couples, and even to individual women on effective contraceptive techniques. And it was a national organization that formed local birth control leagues around the country and sought out to change the laws, because the laws were still on the books, by lobbying. Uh, they opened a research clinic in 1923 in New York where doctors oversaw the contraceptive efforts with couples and they kept data to use uh, for, for scientific measurements of the, effectiveness of the effectiveness of varying forms of contraception. Eventually, this American Birth Control League would merge with other organizations and structures and change its name to something that you know today as Planned Parenthood, right? 
So again, take take just kind of a step back from you know we've looked at some some a little bit of the details of you know uh, legal systems in America in the late in the 1800s and early 1900s. There's technological developments happening where you know in in Europe and other places where doctors are getting more knowledge about how the procreation uh, happens, what cycle, how how a menstrual cycle works. All of these things are happening. These are forces of change, right? It's, it's going to change the world, and, and you, of course, now you know how it's changed the world, but as it was happening, still, in 1923, all Christians held to the same view of contraception, that namely, it was an offense against God, there was scriptural evidence for it, and there's tradition. In, there's tradition even if you're a Protestant. You have Luther and Calvin, and I'm sure others, uh, holding to very... Um, very staunch positions on the evil of contraception. Now, where the floodgates really begin to open within Christianity is in 1930, okay? So the Anglican Church holds this uh, conference uh, periodically called the Lambeth Conference, and at their Lambeth Conference in 1930, and again, remember, there's all this discussion about the uh, birth control league. Um, there is a, a general more more permissiveness in the culture toward discussing these ideas. It wasn't something that you had to really, you know, go underground to find out about. There's a, there's a certain respectability about discussing the licitness of contraception, even in public. So in 1930, at the Lambeth Conference, the Anglican Church um, discussed the issue of contraception. They voted on two resolutions which explicitly discuss the issue the issue of the moral judgment on contraception. Okay, so this is Resolution 15 from the Lambeth Conference by the Anglican Church in 1930. Um, uh, Re- Resolution 15, which 193 of the bishops voted for, 67 voted against. When there is clearly felt moral obligation to limit or avoid parenthood, the method must be decided on Christian principles. The primary and obvious method is complete abstinence from intercourse, as far as may be necessary, in a life of discipline and self-controlled lived and self-control lived in the power of the Holy Spirit. So, this question about avoiding uh, pregnancy or limiting pregnancy. Parenthood. The primary way, they say, to achieve limiting or avoiding parenthood is complete abstinence as long as necessary on a life of discipline and self control through the Holy Spirit. Now, that's the traditional teaching of the church, Christian, I mean, Catholic or Protestant. It's the next line where there's a tremendous change. Nevertheless, right, in those cases where there is such a clearly felt moral obligation to limit or avoid parenthood, and where there is a morally sound reason for avoiding complete abstinence, the conference agrees that other methods may be used, provided that this is done in the light of the same Christian principles. The conference records its strong, listen to this, its strong condemnation of the use of any methods of conception control from motives of selfishness, luxury, or mere convenience. Right now, 
the authors of this statement may very well have imagined that what they were doing was giving married Christian, married Anglican couples who really have a serious reason to avoid children, but who also have some other serious reason not to be abstinent. And they don't define any of these, what these reasons would be, but this is the situation they're describing. A couple, a married couple, who has a serious reason to avoid having children and has some moral reason not to live a life of abstinence in the power of the Holy Spirit. If they decide that it's necessary, they can use other means. But not only can they use those other means, there's a warning that they don't begin to use those means just out of luxury or convenience, and that they should not have motives of selfishness. In other words, it, there's this duty for the these these hypothetical couples to really be sure that they can't just be absent, right? So it's it's a limited sort of statement. Of course, you can imagine what happens with that kind of limited sort of statement, right? It's like when you tell your kids they can they can eat in the uh, living room as long as they clean up after themselves. Um, that's that's the end of that. That's going to probably be a disaster, right? And this is sort of what happens. I'll read you also Resolution 18 uh, to to give you the distinction that they're trying to draw. And I will say in their in their favor, the Lambeth Conference was trying to make a distinction between the limited use of of contraceptive methods by married couples with all of those conditions or everybody using them for whatever they want. So Resolution 18 said this, Sexual intercourse between persons who are not legally married is a grievous sin. The use of contraceptives does, does not remove the sin. In view of the widespread and increasing use of contraceptives among the unmarried, and the extension of irregular unions owing to the uh, diminution of any fear of consequences, the conference presses for legislation forbidding the exposure for sale and the unrestricted advertisement of contraceptives and placing definite restrictions upon their purchase. So at one and the same time, the Lambeth Conference is giving permission to married couples under these very you know, uh, carefully prescribed conditions to use contraceptives, and saying, but we can't just let anybody have them. We don't even want people to be exposed to them. There should be restrictions on their advertisement and sale, right? Which is, I guess you got to say, it's it's nice that they were trying to kind of maintain a sort of foothold for the, the traditional uh, Christian morality, even while they tried to make a, a slight concession for certain couples. Well, it didn't really work that that was going to hold to be this very limited sort of circumstance. Have you ever seen a, a cartoon where there's, a, you know, like a, a fish tank or some something with water in it, and there's like a little hole, and somebody covers it up with their hand, and then another hole, and they use their other hand, and then another hole, and they use one of their feet, and, you know, it just keeps going this way, and, you know, Bugs Bunny can get seven hands or something to try and hold all of them in. That's kind of what happens. And it's interesting, because this is 1931, uh, the Washington Post said that if you take this Lambeth decision, said if carried to its logical conclusion, the committee's report, if carried into effect, would sound the death knell of marriage as a holy institution by establishing degrading practices which would encourage indiscriminate morality. And they see this really clearly, this limited, you know, partial, it's okay. This is the Washington Post you know, editorial responding, the suggestion that the use of legalized contraceptives would be careful and restrained is preposterous. 
And indeed, that's what winds up happening. Of course, you know that now because you live in 2021, nearly 100 years later, where, uh, you know, contraception is just uh, anywhere. I mean, almost anywhere you can find contraception. Now, the Pope at the time, Pius XI, responded in a very strong fashion. Um, He wrote an encyclical on marriage, uh, and it was dated December 31st, 1930. He wanted to respond in, in large measure to the decision of the Lambeth Conference, which you have to remember was the first time of the first official time that a Christian group had given permission for its members to use contraception. So Pius XI responds with a, a, an encyclical in 1930 uh, called Casti Canubii, and he affirms the traditional, you know, Christian teaching that contraception should not be allowed. So in paragraph 53, he says, first consideration is due to the offspring, which many have the boldness to call, to call the disagreeable burden of matrimony, and which they say is to be avoided by married people, not through virtuous continence, which Christian law permits in matrimony when both parties consent, but by frustrating the marriage act. So Pius XI is saying, there's people that are looking at children and this must have been a shocking thing in 1930. They're treating children like a burden that has to be avoided. And then he goes on to say, that, but they're not avoiding that burden through continence, which is abstinence, okay? Uh, sometimes we use the word continence different uh, today. Not So not through virtuous abstinence, which the tradition of the church teaches, but by frustrating the, the marriage act. And he says, some justify this abuse on the ground that they are weary of children and they wish to gratify their desires without the consequent burden. Others say they cannot remain continent, nor on the other hand can they have children because of the difficulties, whether on part of the mother or on the part of family circumstances. But he says in paragraph 54, no reason, however grave, may be put forward by which anything intrinsically against nature can become conformable to nature and morally good. Since, therefore, the conjugal act is destined primarily by nature for the begetting of children, those who, in exercising it, deliberately frustrate its natural power and purpose, sin against nature, and commit a deed which is shameful and intrinsically vicious. And he later goes on to say that, any use of marriage exercised in such a way that the act is frustrated in its natural power to generate life is an offense against the law of God and of nature. And those who indulge in such are branded with the guilt of a grave sin. And so Pius XI is making the argument that, first of all, virtuous abstinence is the logical step if you need to avoid uh, or limit your number your, your number of children, that that's what the Christian tradition has taught. And granted, that's a development. Even that is a development, and it took time. But but it was clear by 1930, certainly that, and you see it even in the Anglican discussion, that abstinence is a good way to avoid children. So he says on the one hand, we have abstinence. Like don't forget about that. That's a real option, right? Even still. Let me reaffirm that there is a 
law of God at work, that God has designed marriage and designed the sexual faculties to function in such a way that you cannot frustrate them through the use of contraception, and that it's a law of nature, that even with the natural law, you should be able to see the function of the sexual faculties and what they are ordered toward, and that frustrating that function, frustrating that telos or that end for which the sexual faculties are made, is a violation of nature. So he makes a twofold argument that the teaching of what had been Christianity, but now the Catholic Church in opposed to the Anglicans, is that both the natural law and the law of God prohibit this kind of act. Now, that gets us to 1930, on the precipice of 1931, December 31st, 1930, Pius XI issues this response. What we're going to see going forward is a storm of controversy as more technological developments take place, more medical changes are making contraception something that looks very different. So going from, say, condoms or um, these sorts of pre preventive methods, um, spermicide, those sorts of things, to an oral pill that you can take like medicine every day seems to shift for many people their moral analysis of whether or not contraception is a good or an evil. What's fascinating about this, and you'll have to see in the next part of this discussion, is that at the helm of developing the first oral contraceptive, the pill, was a Catholic. And who would develop a natural awareness of fertility that could help people find the infertile days, such as Pius XI uh, mentions and you know, virtuous abstinence, um, or the Congregation for the Doctrine of, or rather, the Holy Office in the 1800s said, you know, yeah, don't don't bother people's consciences if they're using the infertile period. Actually, a non-Catholic doctor who was nudged by a Catholic priest to please help the lay people. So, what we're going to see in the next part is the way medical technology changes, and the way legislative changes take place in America that has a tremendous impact on the way people are thinking about contraception in the 1960s and heading into Vatican II, and it sets up a fascinating story that I'd like to finish for you in the next episode. So please join me. Thanks.